the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, a double espresso at the Harley-Davidson dealership in Underhill, escaping the Wailing Woman at the bottom of the gravity well. Plus, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. So, Christopher, what do we have this time on the podcast? This time on the podcast, we have an interview with Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin talking about the new entry in the Serrated Edge contemporary fantasy series called Silence. Misty and Cody discuss elves, small main towns stuck in the days of dial-up modems, as well as their own very interesting collaboration techniques. Yeah, that was... Uh interesting uh, discussion of how they actually write the thing um, together simultaneously at the same time that is um, oh is, wow uh, which I not many uh, not many co-author pairs do it that way and we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's under a graveyard sky here's the news We have new free fiction and non-fiction on the Bain.com website. Yeah, there's Moonlit Sonata, a story by William Ledbetter. The moonlets in the story are strange rock-like formations that float around a gas giant in a frontier star system. They emit these hypnotic radio signals um, that are referred to as symphonies, but are the moonlets a natural phenomenon or something more? Uh, the author is William Ledbetter, Bill Ledbetter. He is the administrator of our Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award, and his last story to appear on Bain.com was included in the year's best military SF and space opera last year. What about the nonfiction, Christopher? Well, our nonfiction is another great piece by scientist, thinker, NASA technologist, and Bain fiction author Les Johnson. Les brings us a call to arms for getting humanity off its collective buttocks and back into deep space exploration. Yeah, that one's called Mars, Moon, or Bust. So, Moonlit Sonata by William Ledbetter and Mars, Moon, or Bust by Les Johnson are now available at Bain.com. They're on the front page, free. And they are perpetually available at Bain eBooks, which you can go to at BainEbooks.com, in the collection's free short stories 2016, and Free Nonfiction 2016. Just put those in the search box and you'll be able to find these articles and stories. I want to welcome Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Good evening. Uh, Mercedes Lackey, Misty, uh, we call her is the New York Times bestselling author of the Bardic Voices series and the Serrated Edge series, or those are both Bane series, the Heralds of Valdemar series, and many more. Among her popular Bane titles are The Fire Rose, The Lark and the Wren, as well as The Shadow of the Lion, Burdens of the Dead, and Much Fall of Blood, which she wrote with Eric Flint and Dave Freer. With her bevy of accomplices, Misty is also the co-author of four novels in The Secret World Chronicle, which is a Bane project as well. Um, Cody Martin is a writer living in Florida who I don't know a whole lot more about. <laughs> he, uh, 
he is i know that he's one of the authors who is uh, uh working on the secret world chronicle with um with misty and veronica and the, the gang um but now cody is the co-author with mercedes lackey of a new entry in the serrated edge contemporary fantasy series at booksellers everywhere the book is called silence so a uh, silence is part of a really big series misty can you tell us about uh, can you tell us a bit about the Serrated Edge series as a whole and, and how this book fits in? Well, the Serrated Edge series is actually one of the first urban fantasy series uh, to be to be published, uh, along with the Bardic, uh, the Bedlam Bard series. Uh, I was one of the pioneers of urban fantasy, and it's basically combining the unlikely pair of elves and Cars and kids. Yeah, well, it's so it's in, it's set in our time, but there are elves. Um, how how are they different than Tolkien elves or Santa helper elves? They're very Celtic, for one thing, right? They're, they're they are Celtic, although we have made it fairly explicit that they are but one of many, many, many Underhill races that occasionally impinge on our modern real world. Uh, the genesis of the Serrated Edge Elves is that the, many of them, well, all of them require contact with human beings in order to more or less uh, amuse themselves. They are not very creative. They live, may live incredibly long lives, but that's at a price of not being able to create for themselves. So they copy what we do in order to keep their lives from turning into endless tedium. Mm -hmm. They need us, and yet they kind of look down on us at the same time. Some of them do. There are two sides of the elves. There are the Sali and the Unsali. The Unsali are basically the bad guys that uh, exploit human beings and use them and sometimes... Uh, generally live off of negative human emotions. They get energy from negative human negativity. And the Sali elves are more or less the good guys. Uh, they live off of the energy of positive human emotions and cr human creativity. But it's not quite that clear cut as Cody and I did pointed out in, in silence. Yeah. So, um, and you point that out through uh, Stacy, who is our 16-year-old heroine. Um, so at the beginning of the book, she's been unceremoniously dropped off by her dad on the, the doorstep of her alcoholic mom in a small main town. Um, she's come from New York City. She's kind of a, what kind of a contrast between New York and Maine, uh, and particularly this, this town, does Stacy immediately run into? Because... Uh, kind of sets up uh, where we're going with the rest of the story, that is. Silence is a town which has been artificially kept right about in the 1950s, which means all of the technological gadgets and, and constant connectivity that all of us take for granted these days is absolutely absent there. It really makes for some interesting moments for Stacy. Well, of course, because as far as she's concerned, uh, this contact, this connectivity has always been there. 
So it's like taking a huge portion of her life and 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 taking it away from her. It's an absolute culture shock for Stacy. She's used to being able to pretty much walk wherever she needs to. Uh, of course, you know, in New York City, that's how most of them get around. And she's thrust in a silence where it's very small town but still spread out. Just between her house and uh, where she actually uh, starts meeting some of the other characters, it's it, nece- uh, it needs a, a bite to actually get into town. I like that um, you actually know that New Yorkers walk a lot, which is something not everyone knows. Well, that was, that's my fault because I've spent a lot of time visiting in, in New York. Yeah. And uh, I'm well aware that uh, New Yorkers walk a tremendous amount. And they also have the benefit of a pretty good uh, public transportation system, which, again, you're not going to find in a small town. Yeah. You're always five blocks away from the uh, subway entrance, though, it seems, when you... Anyway. Um, and and Stacy, what I found amusing was our, our jolt back to the 90s, which is the fact that she, to get on the Internet, she needs a, a dial-up modem. And it's the, a whacking 24 baud. <laughs> now, she doesn't immediately have these things. Um, how does she begin to acquire them, and how does she acquire friends in silence? Where does she find them? Who are they? Well, I have pointed out to people that who say, oh, New Yorkers are so unfriendly. That is absolutely not true. They're just in a hurry. Mm. New Yorkers are very friendly, and if you catch them when they're not in a hurry, uh, they're very happy to help you. So Stacy, having grown up in that, knows this and doesn't have any trouble talking to people. And one of the first people she talks to is a waitress in the local diner who sets her up with uh, a map a map to what little there is in in silence and also suggests that a good place for her to go and find friends would be the local bookstore. Uh, immediately she has that culture shock of, well, in New York City you have nothing but choices. Oh, well, I feel like eating Indian food tonight. I feel like eating uh, authentic Chinese. I feel like having this or that. I feel like having this sort of entertainment. Whereas in silence, they have very few options at all. So immediately meeting that waitress uh, as she's kind of wandering around town hopeless and being given that map to you know, kind of point her in the right direction of, well, there's not much, but here's what's good. <laughs> it's really a, kind of a good start for Stacy that she may not have otherwise had. And the map is, I think, what, 30, 40 years old? Yes, but nothing has changed in <laughs> silence in all that yeah. time except for the addition of the bookstore. It's still completely usable. Yeah. Yep. So, by the way, um, if I happen to know that if you ever want to engage a New Yorker in friendly conversation, just ask them how much they pay for rent, and they will go on and on. <laughs> <laughs> so. It's an art form. Yeah. So, um,. These tech problems and the odd throwback nature of silence may have to do with some magic in the vicinity. Um, the first person Stacy meets is this guy or something named Dylan. Uh, can you tell us something about Dylan? Who is he and, and what about that motorcycle he's riding? Well, 
It's very cool. Well, I'll, t- I'll take the motorcycle and Cody can take Dylan. The motorcycle isn't really. The motorcycle looks like no identifiable brand whatsoever, and there's a reason for this. The motorcycle is actually alive. We had living living things disguised as machines in the original serrated edge books, mostly cars. In this case, we have made it a motorcycle. If for no other reason, then uh, drawing motorcycles is very cool for Larry, and he is <laughs> wonderful at it. The uh, cover of the book is by Larry Dixon, um, who is uh, Misty Lackey's husband, and it's got that it's got the motorcycle on it. It's very cool. And it's it, we we uh, foiled it, right? Yes, you did. It's nice. We counted on that when he designed it. Yeah, there's an art to making something that uh, take foil right, and I think this is a really really great cover. And by the way, it is um, on the Bookscan bestseller list this week. Awesome! We're happy to see that. So it is a national bestseller at this point. Well, that makes us happy, doesn't it, Cody? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So she meets the bookstore nerds, um, people that are kids that are kind of like her. She's nearly swept off her feet by a local rich kid, though. And this is Sean Blackthorne. So what's Sean like, and how is he different than Dylan? Oh, Cody didn't cover Dylan yet. Cody. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Dylan. We talked about that cool motorcycle. Absolutely. It's one of the. Uh first things that Stacy notices is out of place in this totally out of place uh, town. Um, she's actually sitting in the diner when she sees Dylan. And Dylan himself, uh, bad boy, but there's something very alluring about him for Stacy, something she can't put her finger on. And uh, a little bit of danger there, absolutely. Uh, classic, you know, good looks, but a roughness about him, too. Someone who can handle himself. Whereas Sean Blackthorne, well, Misty, if you want to take Sean. Oh, Sean is a beautiful rich boy. If he would not be out of place as the leading man of any hot teen flick. Mm-hmm. And he never Swan, seems to put a foot wrong. I was kind of thinking of them as, uh, I don't know if you're Gilmore Girl fans, but... Um... But Rory's two different kinds of boyfriends on that show. Anyway, I don't know if that strikes rings a bell. Uh, um, so it's, much TV. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm to admit that I watched a little bit of Gilmore Girls back in the day. Never mind. Me and Jim Men's are huge Gilmore Girl fans. Don't tell anybody about Jim's addiction, though. Um, it's not a spoiler to say that a great deal more than initially meets the eye is going on at the Hawthorne compound, and. Why Stacy becomes part of that mix? Why? Um, what are the parties like there, and why the heck does she, does Sean seem so fascinated with her? Well, the party is, if you can imagine the best possible party in the world, that would be it. Uh, best music, best entertainment, certainly the best food. Uh, sort of a definitely a Beverly Hills party type of vibe. Uh, and Sean is heavily, heavily attracted. Um, and there's a reason for this. He absolutely intends on using Stacy for something. Yeah. 
Well, um, she's she's very the the one thing we like about. Of course, we get suspicious because Tracy's Stacy is very realistic about her looks, um, which are good, but not um, not in model good looks. And, it, and she's seen them. She, she says she's seen models, and she has in New York. And it doesn't seem to be her sparkling personality, which is um, very um, nice. But uh, you know not bon vivant. So there is something else within Stacy that, uh, that Sean's after it. Trying not to give anything away, but, um, this is where the magic comes in. Yes. For, well, from the previous books in the series, um, maybe we can talk about how the elves arrange themselves politically in our modern world. Um, who or what you, you talked a little bit about the unsaily, by the way, um, Tell us about this spelling, this word, how to say it, and uh, I believe it's a um, historic term from Welsh folklore, right? Unsaily. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Uh, Irish, though. Irish. Oh, yes. Very much intentional. How do you spell it again? It's U-N-S-E. Let me find it in the book. U-N-S-E-I-L-I-E-I-G-A-T. I um. By the way, I I. Saley, um, it kind of translates to Saley is elves of the light, and unsaley is elves of the darkness. So we have dark elves and and light elves. Um, and it, does that continue to their um to their personalities? Are they evil and good, or is it is that too um? Well, we will have. Cut and dried. We've not encountered any good unsaily characters in this book. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been good unsaily in previous books in the Double Edge series, for instance, uh, who crossed over politically. So there's and and became saily elves. So it is certainly possible. Um, it's easier to call them as as more exploitive and less exploitive. The uh, the Sally elves generally don't take unfair advantage of human beings. They're generally more cooperative. The unsaily will absolutely use human beings and throw them away. Uh, it's not so much that they are two different species as they are two different courts. Uh, and it's really more of a worldview. How do we utilize humanity in, in a positive way or in an exploitive way, as Misty said? And there's definitely some room for wiggle there. Uh, matters of perspective, I guess you could say that each individual elf kind of uh, approaches things for. Mm. But in the end, because they're so so long-lived, um, they sort of look at humanity as something to use, right? And individual humans, even. Well, absolutely. Even the good guys. Um, even the good guys. survival, yeah. Uh, how do the... How do they, when they come from the courts, from Underhill, how do they fit in in human society? What do they do? What are some of the the methods they use that we don't, for us not to discover them? Oh, they they just they hide themselves. Uh, they disguise themselves as humans. 
in the original in the original serrated edge series uh was mostly concentrated around a group of elves in just outside savannah georgia that disguised themselves as uh the manufacturers of of uh, race cars and racing engines and that was one of the things they had done when they first began contacting humans again in the in the 30s and and so forth one of the things that elves traditionally do in in the old so- songs is they challenge humans to to combat uh you know, it was something amusing. Well, the modern equivalent of that is to challenge somebody to a race. And, in fact, in the uh, Sherilyn Kenyon Games Creatures Play anthology, I have a short story about one of the first of those races uh, called False Night on the Road, in which one of our uh, Elfheim, uh Silverthorn Elves from uh, the Savannah area challenges a uh, uh, moonshine runner to a race. And that developed into uh, Kayvon Silverhair putting together this group that actually creates race cars using no cold iron because they have a problem with cold iron. Mm-hmm. There are... Um... Go ahead. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, racing has the advantage of being repeatable and generally is not as frowned upon as combat murder in modern times. Uh-huh. There are some murderous creatures that emerge, though, from... it's Like you say, there's not just cells... Um, what about these red hats? They are pretty <laughs> scary little things. They're actually a, a, a traditional evil magic creature in most of the Celtic mythologies. They are murderous little fucks, pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> murderous little bleeps. Uh... They dye their hats in the blood of their victims. Yeah. And they live on pain and fear and foster those things. And they are nope. definitely what you'd call unsailing. And were you going to say something, Cody? Oh uh, yeah, they're definitely not fun at parties. Sorry about that. Yeah. They're um doesn't Stacy mistake one for a yard gnome at some point or is that Yep. <laughs> I've always thought those things were were evil. So why um why did you decide to why is it called the serrated edge series to begin with and Southeastern Road Racing Association. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's why we capitalized the first uh, S-E-R-R-A. Yep. Uh-huh. Cool. Um, why did you re- decide to revive it, Misty? The um, it, it lay dormant for a little while. Well, uh, 
I decided that, uh, one, I just wanted to do some more of the urban fantasy. Mm-hmm. And two, I wanted to do something that Cody could co-author with me, and that seemed like a good series to reboot. What is the writing process you use with Cody to collaborate on this? We uh, we actually collaborate in uh, uh, Google Docs. Really, Google you- Drive, and we we get we we work out the outline together first, mm-hmm. and then we are in the same document at the same time and we work on it together wow so you you work on it in real time together oh yeah wow it's your dialogue a whole lot more lively mm-hmm. what is that like i mean does does somebody get to erase the other person's or do you discuss that over the phone or before you do anything oh, we can discuss it in a we can discuss it in a tab on the side there's a chat tab that we that we we have uh, I'm always yep. correcting his grammar. I see. Unfortunately, so. But, um, yeah, it really is a uh, back and forth. And, uh, yeah, Misty is my mentor. She's my friend. Uh, we seem to think very much alike on uh, quite a few things as far as, you know, the tone of stories and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So there's always a dialogue between us uh, while we're writing. So there isn't really too much of a slowdown while we're writing either. This is a method that we've been using for about 10 years now. Uh, you know, writing together in real time and having that sort of back and forth. Hey, what do you think about this? Or does this seem like a cool idea? Hey, what if we have them say this? This is a neat bit of dialogue. And it really just helps things flow, you know, flow along pretty uh, quickly. And uh, I don't know, I think it has, again, as Misty said, the dialogue is a lot more lively, a lot more you know, snappy as opposed to just being in one person's head, you know, you have more uh, more minds on the problem, as it were. Do you, um, a lot of authors will take one character and, and the co-authors and the other another. Do you do it that way, or do you um, just uh, do everything together? I mean, character-wise. We do, in this book, we do everything together. When we work on uh, the Secret World Chronicles, we have specific characters that we concentrate on. Each and also of the, of the authors, and also certain ones that are kind of open for anyone to uh, take and run with. But uh, for that one, again, it's very much the same process where we discuss stuff, outline it all together, and if anyone has any questions or any ideas, they pitch it, and uh, we see if it floats. So you, uh, all you, multi-author collaboration on the Secret World. You're, you're all at several points all together on Google, the same Google Doc. Even with four people, or however many there are now? Pretty much four. Four people in the same Google Doc at the same time. Uh, sometimes we'll have more than one open. I'm the best at multitasking, so I, I will flit around to other people's stuff more than the other people will flit around to, 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 to look at something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly how we work in on Secret World Chronicles. Huh. And you set an appointment. Like an appointment time? I'm just fascinated by this. I don't know if it's that interesting to everyone else. Um, do you set an appointment time where everybody gets together? Is there one day of the week? Uh, 
or you're working on it all at once when, when one day of the week, but it's generally one day of the week for, for secret worlds. And then mm. it's whatever, whenever I can corral Cody into the document for the, uh, silence books. Mm. It cracks the myth quite often, but as far as silence goes, uh, generally we will, you know, individually work together with Misty whenever we really can. Uh, her and I work together the most, it seems, uh, you know, just time-wise, since our uh, other collaborators have real-life jobs instead of this fun stuff. Mm. But, um, yeah, usually we will only have one night where all of us are working on the same documents and, you know, kind of jazzing together like that. But uh, other times it will just be, okay, well, tonight Misty's uh, working with uh, one person or another person on this section or that section. And uh, that works out fairly well. But, uh, of course, we'd always like to write more and more often. And I'm sure the fans would agree that we should. Yeah. Are there more Secret World Chronicle books in the uh, pipeline? We're working on the last one in, the, in that series, and we're kind of hoping that they do well enough that uh, that uh, we could do another series. There could always be individual uh, character books. There could always be a, a second, you know, main, you know, big series. Uh, really, sky's the limit, and it just uh, kind of depends on what the people want. Yeah. And, you know, how willing we are to go through all the heartache of uh, seeing some of our favorite characters uh, put through the grinder. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's... Absolutely loves it, I swear. That's why we love it, to read it. Um, will we see more serrated edge novels? Um, are you thinking... Of bringing back silence, um, and Stacy. There is a we're we're working on a second uh, silence book right now called Breaking Silence, and my husband Larry is working on his own solo serrated edge book, uh, bringing back Tannum Drake. Cool. H who is he? Which uh, books was he from? Was he from one of the other? Uh... From uh, uh, Chrome Circle and Born to Run. Mm -hmm. Those Larry wrote those, right? Larry and I wrote those together. Okay, all right. So we're going to see more of, of those. There, um, how are they all interconnected with uh, character-wise? I mean, I've read a lot of them. I've read the Bedlam Bard books, um, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure how it all goes together. Well, the Bedlam Bard books and the Serrated mm -hmm. Edge books are all in the same universe. Mm -hmm. uh, the characters mostly have not intermingled at all. Uh, in the Serrated Edge books, what the characters have in common is that they are all from uh, um, the same group outside of Savannah, Elfheim Fairgrove. Uh. And they're all from that, originally from that group. The Born to Run and Chrome Circle, which was also compiled into a a single volume called Chromeborn. Uh, those are all, those characters are the same in both of those books. But the others, uh, the characters only have in common that they are from the same group in Savannah. Well, uh, all of these books are available uh, as ebooks at BaneEbooks.com, by the way. Yes, they are. Should one want to go and check them out, like, and download them and read them in a giant binge, which people will do. I hope so. Yeah. Um, well, people believe this as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. 
Cody and I actually have uh, collaborated on a couple on two novellas uh, yep. of all the strange things in the world. It is zombies, werewolves, and vampires in space. Where can we find those? Well, they're on it. They're at Amazon. Well, you go ahead and mm-hmm. tell them about it, Cody. Uh, well, it is a horror comedy and comedy horror mixed with neo-noir detective stories. Uh, a wild cast of characters, a hell of a lot of fun to write. Uh, it's on Phoenix Pick Press with uh, Shahid Mahood. And, um, yeah, you can find them on Amazon. The series is called Reboots, with the uh, first uh, one being uh, Reboots Bad Moon Rising and Reboots Just the Right Bullets, and then there's Reboots 2. Uh, oh, gosh, what was the uh, title of that one? Diabolical Streak. We uh, often have a, a lot of uh, song titles that uh, influence uh, some of our chapter and book titles. But yeah, hell of a lot of fun to write. Uh, if you like neo-noir stories, if you like uh, horror comedy, and if you kind of like uh, what we do in silence, or, you know, like you said, uh, reimagining old folktale material, well, reboots would probably be right up a lot of folks' alleys. Instead of it being urban fantasy, it's sci-fi fantasy. Sci-fi fantasy. Mm-hmm. Well, the book is Silence. It is, um, God knows, the 15th something. Do you know uh, which book it is in the Serrated Edge? Oh, let me think. <laughs> I could go to the title page card and... and we did one. Larry and I did two, five. This is nine. This is book number nine in the Serrated Edge series. Silence is actually number 125 of, book, of the books I've written. I, you know, I... um made this title card. I think I did the transmittal on this, as we call them. And, man, that was something to try to get everything to... Uh... I, can't, I, I counted them all up a couple of a couple weeks ago just because I thought I was about to break 100. Mm-hmm. Was I wrong? <laughs> you passed over that landmark. It's like rolling over 100,000 miles and then looking down. And it's... Uh, without even noticing it. Yeah. Well, cool. Silence, book number nine in the Serrated Edge series by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin is now available at booksellers everywhere. So, Misty and Cody, thank you very much for being with us and talking about this great new edition. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. These doors are locked, Fontana said, pulling at the hatch. The massive construction was one of the doors to the lifeboat deck, and it was positively unwilling to open. A Halligan tool wasn't going to scratch it. Crap. Steve said, looking around. That means another pass card hunt. Isn't this Chris's boat? Fontana said. Does he still have his? I don't know, Steve said, keying his radio. Sophia, 
All the exterior hatches we found are locked down. Call Chris and ask him if he still has his passkey, or whatever, for the boat. And tell him we're probably going to need his help finding our way around. Dallas, you monitoring? Roger, Wolf Actual. Tell the Coasties as soon as they get here, they're to coordinate the evacuation teams. These people are going to need wheelchairs, stretchers, something. And right now, getting them off the boat is going to be a professional evolution. They'll need to primarily provide expertise and security. We'll clear the zones, then they can come in and get the people. Copy? Coast Guard personnel to organize evacuation and maintain security presence. Wolf teams to clear. Roger, Steve said. As soon as we get a master key or something. Wolf, Dallas, over. Go ahead, Dallas, Steve said. Retransing a call from the David Cooper, over. Go ahead, retrans, Steve said. Wolf, Chris, got in position to observe. First of all, you know this was my ship, over. Roger, over, Steve said. What can you tell us, over. Good luck. The voyage is one of the largest liners in the world. Getting into it was only the first problem. The staff side acting first intended to do a complete lockdown after all lifeboats were away. A complete lockdown closes and locks all interior doors and hatches, including room doors, in both directions. The only way to override it is from the central control. With the right codes, or correct passkey, or using passkeys locally. Then it gets complicated. I've sent my key over for Faith to bring over to you, but it will only open certain internal common doors and doors specifically related to my job. I can move in all common staff areas and in all the kitchen and supply areas. It won't, for most important example, open cabins. There is no reason a chef should have unrestricted access to the cabins. Buggers, Steve muttered. You're going to have to hunt for a senior staff side officer's key. Stand by. Roger, Steve said, looking at Fontana with a quizzical look. There'd been something in Chris's voice. I didn't really talk about leaving, Chris said. Or about before, much. By some sort of horrible coincidence, you boarded right where I left. There was a... break. Stand by, please. Sorry, Wolf. Take your time, Chris, Steve said. Steve, Paula, breaking in. Go, Paula. Look for the body or remains or clothing of a female senior staff side officer in that area, Paula said. First name is Gwyneth. Don't recall last. Third officer, staff side. Last seen directly opposite boarding area of lifeboat 26. Cooper again, Chris said. With that key, you'll be able to access all areas except those specifically locked down by hire. That's only going to be the bridge and possibly engineering. If you can find Gwyn's badge, that'll do the trick. If not, you're down to cutting torches. All the doors, including cabin doors, are steel. Roger, Steve said, gesturing at Fontana with his chin. Any way to upgrade your key? Only with power to the systems, Chris said. And you'd need to find and get into the staff side office. Break. Steve, I really don't want to come over there. Can't describe how much, but... Once we're to that point, 
I'm going to need you to liaison with the Coasties on clearing, Steve said. But if you're talking now, no. We can probably find the cabins that are occupied on our own. We're going to need help when we start clearing the crew areas. And the working areas. But by then, maybe we'll have found a map or something. Roger. Fontana came back, shaking his head. No badge. Cooper, for what it's worth, it's not here. She's not here. Will your badge get us into the interior? All common areas, Chris replied. Passenger and crew and most support supply areas. Food, at least. But you're going to be buggered getting to those passengers and cabins. What about security? Over. Fontana asked. Security officers should, repeat, should, have access to cabins. Also, some housekeeping will access. Some, but not all. Did you find a security officer? Minimal clothing and materials cast off in this area, Steve said, as Faith clambered over the side. Faith's here. We're going to continue this operation. Again, good luck, Wolf. Thanks, Cooper, Steve said. Chris said this isn't going to get us into the cabins, Faith said, handing him the card. Where there's a will, there's a way. Zombie, zombie, zombies, Faith said, banging on the hatch with the butt of her saiga. Customers? She worked a stethoscope in under her gear and listened. Okay, lots of customers. Okay, Steve said, trying not to snarl. They hadn't even gotten off the lifeboat deck yet. This was the third hatch they'd tried, and they all had multiple customers lined up. Faith, Hooch, and Fontana form a line. Five meters that way, Steve said, pointing forward. They'd gotten away from the entry area, and the deck was mostly clear, except for the usual fecal matter and occasional gnawed corpse. I will pop the hatch, then run like a bugger your way, Steve said. Do not fire until I clear the defense point. Let me make this very clear. Do not shoot me. Sir, Fontana and Hooch both said. Yes, one of you probably should do it, Steve said but I'm going to. That's an order. Just form up and don't shoot me. Try not to, Da, Faith said, walking forward. Just better run like a roo. Weapons pointed down, Fontana said, when they'd lined up. Locked and loaded. Off safe, fingers off the triggers. Take position, prepare to point. There was a large gap between himself and Faith. Faith, locked and loaded? Ready. Hooch, prepared, Sergeant. Ready when you are, boss. Steve took a deep breath and keyed the door. It popped open, slowly, fortunately, and he turned and started running like a scared roo. Don't look back, he muttered. Don't look back. He didn't really need to. The howls of the zombies told him everything he needed to know. Oh, run faster, da, Faith said. Ten meters didn't seem very far, unless it was the distance your dad had to run to outrun a pile of zombies that was, if anything, larger than her reception party. Da was loaded down with weapons, ammo, and equipment. The zombies were not. They'd been slowed opening the heavy hatch, but they were now catching up. Fire, Fontana said, putting words to action with a blast of 12-gauge into a zombie's chest. Steve skidded to a stop and turned around, then lunged to fill the gap in the line. 
There were at least 50 zombies in the group that had been following him. They were tripping over the bodies of the leaders, but that wasn't stopping them, just barely slowing them down. He lifted his shotgun as he joined the line and pulled the trigger. It wouldn't move. He grimaced, jacked around into the chamber, took it off safe, and pulled the trigger again. That time it worked. Backstep, Fontana called. Stay on line. I'm out, Faith said, pulling a pistol. Going pistol, Hoot said. Ten rounds goes fast when it's a zombie horde. Shit, Steve said. One of the zombies was still wearing body armor and a riot helmet. No pants, but body armor. And shotgun and forty-five did poorly against body armor. The zombie zoomed in on Faith and tackled her. It had apparently figured out how to lift its face shield to deliver a bite and bit down on the juncture of her neck and shoulder. Fuck, Faith said. Not again. Her hand scrabbled for a weapon. Pistol won't work. Kevlar knife. She reached down to her leg, pulled out a nine-inch Gerber commando, and started to stab the zombie repeatedly and rapidly in the back through its armor. I love you too. The wave had receded. The security zombie was pretty much the last. Reload, Fontana said. Faith, you gonna get back to work anytime soon? He's heavy, Faith said, pushing the dead zombie off. Use a little help here. Steve lifted the security guard off his daughter by the neck of his armor and gave her a hand up. That is why I hate mall cops, Faith said, pulling out the knife with a twist and wiping it down with a rag. For future reference, Fontana said, the pistol would have worked. He had his arms up. Stick the barrel in the armpit. Point, Faith said, putting the knife away. But I was pissed off. I couldn't tell if he was trying to eat me or something else. Steve rifled through the pockets of the armor and came up with a security card. Ta-da, he said, waving it. Cross-load ammo and reload magazines, Fontana said, pulling off his assault pack. Hooch, Faith, on guard. Wolf and Falcon to load. Commodore, I would recommend, despite that card, that we remain together as a four-man team until we're sure that we've dealt with all similar large groups. Agreed, Steve said, pulling out ammo and reloading his Saigamags. He'd never pulled his pistol. He held out his hand for Faith's and started loading hers. What could we have done better? The overall plan was good, Hoot said. He turned to face forward while Faith covered aft. Except for one thing. I think in future with large groups and multiple possible entries, or I understand the thing about bringing them to you, not going to them, but maybe open the hatch, then call for zombies? If you have reason to suspect a large zone with multiple zombies, open the hatch, back off, and then draw them to you, Fontana said. Reasonable, Steve said. It's not really relevant here, Fontana said. But the one rule of zombie land I'd like to bring up is always have a way out. Preferably with a way to lock it behind you. What if we run into more security zombies? Faith asked. I tried for a leg shot but missed. Sorry. Shooting a person in the leg is tough, Fontana said, closing up his assault pack and handing Hooch his refilled magazines. Melee weapons? If you're talking about a machete, Steve said, standing up. I don't think so. Kevlar takes stabs, and it will cut, but I don't see cutting through it with a machete.
Machete or a kukri takes off their arm, Faith said, with enough force. And I still say a chainsaw is the way to go. They're heavy, Fontana said. And if you tried to cut a security zombie with one, the Kevlar would jam the chain. Come up, Faith said, making a motion of cutting up between the legs. Oh, Hooch said, grabbing his jewels. There's things you just don't say around guys. The area the zombies had come from was a corridor about ten meters wide with more hatches off of it. There was a faint light area where the exterior hatch was open, but most of the corridor was shrouded in darkness. It was impossible to tell how long it was, but at least there weren't any zombies immediately coming into view. Where to? Fontana asked. They decided to go for the quiet approach and see how it worked. Swape this, Steve said, pulling out a tack light. The powerful hand light carried to the far end, but barely. Turning around, the same happened. The corridor was as long as a football pitch. Bloody hell. Falcon, She-Wolf, forward. Hooch, on me. Pick up any cards you find. Meet back here. We need some cave lights, Fontana said, sweeping the tack light on his saiga from side to side. This ship is too big for tack lights. No shit, Faith said, then tapped hers. I think mine took a beating. I'm going to need to switch it out. I've got a spare, Fontana said. So do I, Faith said, stopping and pulling off her rock. You guys had more surefires than any one group should own, Fontana said. Not that I'm complaining. He not only had one on his rifle, but two duct taped to his body armor, facing forward, and another in a helmet mount. Da always complains through movies, you know, Faith said. The idiot going into the basement in the horror movie with the light that doesn't work pisses him off. We've got flashlights all over the house at home, and if we had to drop in the dunny in the dark, he wanted plenty of light. But we never figured on clearing a bleeding cruise ship. What are cave lights? You know those million candle power portable spotlights on boats, Fontana said. Like that, but headlights and handlights, smaller too. They'd fill this up with light. There, Faith said, standing up and shaking her shotgun. Better. Must have been bad if you busted a surefire, Fontana said. Fair dinkum scrum, Faith said. And I don't think it's busted, just messed up. This isn't somewhere I want my tack light going out. The end of the corridor was a blank wall covered in instructions on boarding lifeboats. This was clearly the pre-boarding assembly area. All the hatches were either inboard or outboard. While there were plenty of remains, there were probably four times as many bodies as there had been zombies. All the zombies had been at the hatch. They picked up three security cards and moved back to the rendezvous. What now, sir? Fontana said, handing over the cards. Steve checked through them and stuck them in a pouch. Now, Gwyneth, he said, now seen your offices. He contemplated the hatches lining the corridor. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. I was expecting something Australian, Hoot said. Like, um, g'day, or something. Australians use it too, Steve said. It's a mnemonic of the Celtic numbering system. But that's not important. The real question is, do we use this hatch that is in the light, or one of the ones that is in darkness? If we use this one, it will automatically attract zombies when we open it. 
if they haven't already gathered from the noise. If we use one farther down, either way, we might have the element of surprise, but we'll be fighting in the dark. And silhouette. Faith pulled out her stethoscope and checked the door. I don't hear anything, she said. But these are thick doors. No banging, no scratching. I'd say this one, sir, Fontana said. First, we're here. Second, we can see our exit. Fair dinkum, he said. That's Australian, Marine. Roger, sir, Hooch said, chuckling. Like the exterior hatches, it had massive double doors designed to open outward. He swiped the reader with the security guard's card, and while the light went from red to green, the hatch didn't open. Faith flipped out her halligan and applied the pry bar to the hatch, which popped open slightly. Steve held up a hand, then waved a hooch. Once it was moving, the hatch opened easily. The room revealed beyond was apparently vast and entirely dark. It appeared to be an arena with a square deck in the middle. Is that a pool? Faith whispered, pointing her tack light at the deck. Or a basketball court? I think it was an ice rink, Hooch said. No zombies, though. Really? Faith said. Ollie, ollie, oxen free! There was a widespread and growing, growling and howling, and heads started popping up all over the arena. The zombies turned their heads away at the bright lights after months in darkness, but they also stumbled to their feet and started to close on the hatch. Back up, Steve ordered, snapping up his saiga and shooting the closest zombie. All the way outside. Exterior deck, maintain formation, back aft on exit. Thanks a lot, Faith, Hooch snarled. This was the plan, right? Faith said, firing steadily. Come get some, zombies. This would have been the perfect time for some 762, Fontana said. The good news this time was that the zombies were half blind, and instead of coming in a mass, they were trickling out. In large numbers and clots, but not 50 in a bunch. Fontana, hooch, reload, Steve said, going to pistol. Up, Fontana said, reload. Okay. Steve said. We have something resembling a method for outer clearance. What did we do right and wrong? Fight? There had been nearly as many zombies in the arena as in the outer corridors, and in much better shape. When the wave had stopped, they closed and latched the door to get some time for crossload and another AAR. I shouldn't have initiated without warning? Faith asked. I'm going to put that in the area of a boo-boo, Steve said. But yes, I only initiate zombie call with warning. Hooch? I fumbled my reload, Hasianic said. I'm not that used to this AK system. Like it, don't get me wrong, these things are the shit, but I'm still getting used to the system. Two things, Fontana said. Our store of 12 is low, and so is 45. We're fighting in fairly big areas, and while this would be a weapon switch, I suggest we change out for your AKs. 762 would work just about as well as shotgun. We have more 762. This is one of the few areas where it will make sense, and my shoulder is getting pounded by this 12, he added with a grin. Whiner, Faith said, grinning back. Make sense, Steve said. You said two. More, really, Fontana said. The initiation. Okay, so the zombies apparently spend a lot of time sleeping. 
we need an initiator. My first thought was a flashbang, but we don't have any, and it would probably be overkill. It would have been fun to toss one in the middle of that arena, mind you, but overkill. There's no such thing as overkill, Faith said. There is only open fire and reloading. That that never caught on as a bigger meme than LOL cats just says it all about people. Hush, Steve said. Continue, Sergeant. I'd suggest a whistle. Makes sense, Hoot said. May I suggest, with due respect, that the Commodore handle that? Bite me, Faith said, shaking her head. It all worked out okay. But yeah, Dad can get his little whistle. You be coach. We'll do, Steve said. More, Sergeant? We probably should take some time and sit down with Chris and discuss the layout of this place. We should have known that door would lead to an arena. I mean, we could have gone back on deck, called him, and asked him. He might not have known exactly, but he probably would have had some idea. Also, we should probably cross-check this. It makes sense that the lifeboat hatches would open on large gathering areas. Thus, another reason for the 762. I'm fairly terrified of bounces around all this steel, Steve said. I admit that's because I caught one myself once upon a time, but rifle rounds just keep going. Again, in this type of environment, Fontana said, waving around. This deck is fairly smooth-walled. We should be able to fire parallel to the ship without fear of bouncers. We'll have to retreat outside before engaging with rifles. Rifles and these, Hoot said, patting the Saiga. We're already fairly ramboed up as it is. No, Fontana said. We'll have to either use the rifles in close or use pistols on the retreat. Two sets, Steve said. You and I will take the IKs. I've trained with them almost exclusively since I got out and fell in love with the bloody things. Hooch and Faith will maintain the Saigas despite Hooch's discomfort with the reload. They will cover on retreat to exterior with us as backup if necessary. Then we'll switch roles and we'll rehearse it first. That sounds like a plan, sir, Fontana said. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a super cute Elvenstead pony in the form of a silver Vespa 150 that breathes rainbows and fire on alternate Thursdays. Plus, the You have to say that cuter. I can't, I can't. You can do it. I don't want to do a Powerpuff Girls voice, Tony. No, I don't know if I can hold it that long. Do what you can. And a super cute Elvenstead pony in the form of a silver Vespa 150 that breathes rainbows and fire on alternate Thursdays. Plus, the undiluted essence of herbal supplements grown from the gentle liquid condensate of clouds of thanks and praise for Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin, the co-authors of Silence. That wasn't so hard. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Free Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. 
now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. Thank you.